Friday, September 18, 1925, Arkham, Massachusetts. It is the end of a long and abnormally hot summer. The first hints of autumn beckon, but a heavy heat persists, relentless. A silent, unspoken anger grips the town. Tempers are short, and in the last week alone there have been numerous reports of townspeople coming to heated, violent blows with one another over simple misunderstandings. And now, a call from James Hankerson. He claims to have found a dismembered body in his barn. Blaming the weather would be too easy. There is something wrong with this town. Not a whole lot this old soothsayer can do to stop the slide. My auguries indicate a small group of investigators will soon take note of these strange happenings and set forth to make things right. I'll be watching their progress. But I won't be holding my breath. So they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men, and who came to the young world at the All right, welcome everyone to episode 13 of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, lost in time and space, and joined with me as always are my fellow co-hosts. I'm a man from Lang, host of the Whisper and Darkness YouTube channel. I'm the innkeeper of Ace Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And I am Nathan Early, Jester of the Abyss, and basically lurker in the darkness behind these wonderful people. How are you guys all doing this morning? Amazing. You guys staying safe? Oh, yeah, yeah. No cabin fever just yet. <laughs> Lots of gaming <laughs> to keep us distracted here. Hey, what have you been, uh, what you've been playing recently, Vase? Oh, man, we did uh, three sessions of Delta Green, two sessions of D&D, I've done three sessions of Arkham Horror, the card game, one with you, and two solo sessions. So oh, nice. Lots nice. of gaming getting done this week. <laughs> what about you guys? I have been playing, well, I did my uh, stream of the new Investigator decks on last week, and then I've been playing one of those decks, the only one we know the... Uh, Signature weaknesses and assets for Winifred, and uh, that has been interesting, to say the least. And uh, yeah, looking forward to to uh, playing her some more. And what about you, Nathan? How's uh, how's life at the store been recently? Well, I mean, obviously with the COVID nineteen, everybody's world has been turned upside down and shaken a little bit. Um, basically, the world pulled a an insta fail token. Uh, so we're hoping to, you know, do better. Uh, we had to shut down the store, and now we're doing curbside only. So there's the f- there's the fun back and forth of, hey, do you have this thing via email or phone? And then we check the thing, and then we write them back or give suggestions, and then we charge them over the phone and run it out in a bag with the game sanitized and keeping six-foot distance and say, 
thanks for supporting our business so we don't go out of business. So, um, yeah, other than that, um, I have been continuing to, this is going to shock the community for people that know me. I've been continuing to pimp out all of my games that I care about. Um, so I went to Office Depot and I continue to work on my resume paper quality Lord of the Rings book that I'm making for the LCG. Uh, I rebound some stuff for Kingdom Death Builder. Um, I got a bunch of fan-made stuff printed off for Arkham Horror, and um, I did a, a bunch of stuff for Marvel Champions. So it has been glorious. Oh, and I've just been uh, also pimping out Cthulhu Death May Die with acrylic tokens and special boards that I'm having made. So Hold on, Nathan, but you're not stuck at home yet. You're still working, right? I am still, quote-unquote, working. So how are you getting all this done and working? Doppelganger? Can we say that? Can <laughs> I say go. that yet? Is that technology come to the, these humans at this time? At least a select so. few. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, what have you been up to? <laughs> oh, man. So with my job now not existing, I've had a, <laughs> I've had a lot of free time. Uh, so I started playing a little bit of Darkest Dungeon, which if you guys aren't familiar is a... Um, turn-based RPG game with a very Lovecraftian vibe. Uh, the basic uh, basic premise of the game is that a, a rich abbey owner uh, discovers an ancient an ancient chamber in his in his priory and he he, um, he hires adventurers to go down and kill the monsters inside. So it has a very uh, rats in the walls type premise and a lot of the enemies are very Lovecraftian inspired. Uh, so I've been starting to play that. I continued playing some Arkham on and off stream. Uh, I got smacked around in TFA. So I'm going to try to redo another campaign of TFA. Hopefully um, let's, uh, sorry to interrupt, but TFA is um, the Forgotten Age. Since this is the new player episode, we should... Yes, thank you. Abbreviate. Yeah, sorry, yeah. continue. <laughs> So I've been playing that on stream, and I think I'm going to also start a run through Cornarium, which is a PC game inspired by At the Mountains of Madness. So I'm excited to dive into that too. But yeah, why don't we uh, why don't we go ahead and dive into tonight's main topic? We love new players. We love new players. It's not a cult face. <laughs> I just I love hearing new people me. getting into the game because it's, <laughs> it's a sign that the game is growing. Did you say fresh people? Is this like people that have just used Clarisol? Fresh. Hey, also, we don't <laughs> hot indoctrinate new players like a cult. But if we did, they could write to Carolyn Fern the botanist at gmail.com to let us know they're new players <laughs> and maybe Vase will send them something. Okay. That's all I wanted to say. Maybe. <laughs> There's a chance. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a small, unlikely chance. <laughs> there you go. But but yeah, we all we're all huge fans of the Arkham LCG here on the podcast. And uh, we we wanted to start by by going into who the Arkham LCG appeals for. Or appeals to, rather. Or with. Um, or so somehow. for me, yeah, or any mixture of those <laughs> words. Uh, talking is not my strong suit this morning, apparently. 
but for me, I think uh, fans of the art or things that appeal to uh, to gamers for the Outcome LCG are the deck building aspect of the game, the the lore and the flavor behind the game, um, the RPG elements of the game, as well as the storytelling slash legacy elements of the game as well. Um, so if you're a fan of, say, like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon, or even to some lesser extent like Great Western Trail, there's there's aspects of Arkham that you'll like in the in the deck building and creative aspect of that. And then in, obviously if you're a fan of the Arkham Files games or anything Cthulhu related, you know, it's right there in the name. So that's pretty obvious. And then there's also some other you know, mechanics in the game that really lend itself to an RPG type experience with, with story choices and branching narratives and um, experience and character classes and all that sort of neat stuff. Even a little comedy just thrown in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. Killing killing a giant bird with a meat cleaver is yeah. great fun. <laughs> I, I was surprised yeah. that you went the Great Western Trail route. I I never would have correlated those two. Um, on a storefront level, I I say to, to customers, I say, well, the thing I say every time is there's 30,000 games in my store because it's a giant store. And if they were all to burn to the ground without me being here, except for Arkham Horror, the card game, I would A, be out of a job and B, be completely happy. And I literally tell that to everybody because it's true. But um, I tell people that it's a mix of a choose-your-own-adventure because there are definitely choices you make that come back to haunt or save you. It's a escape room because it has several times where you kind of have to find hidden tricks or decode things or whatever, you know, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, it has a thick RPG element like you mentioned, uh, which, by the way, side note, uh, Vase, Nate, I've been loving that Delta Green uh, three-part thing that you did. <laughs> So good. Oh my God. That yeah, is so, so entertaining. It's true. Nathan texts me randomly telling me, we did a playthrough of Delta Green for those who are not uh, familiar with that, with those episodes. We did a three episode playthrough of, De- of a Delta Green scenario and Nathan texts me at random times in the day laughing or making a comment about a specific situation. Nate, I so wouldn't do that, would I? <laughs> no. Mm. I may or may not have received similar messages. <laughs> what, what about a phone call warning your wife that you're going to break down the doors in the house? <laughs> um, that may or may not have also happened. I will. Uh, I will plead the fifth. Wow, on you one. are like an FBI agent. Just very well done. So, role playing uh, aspect to to the game that's very atmospheric, along with the choose your own adventure escape room. It does. It does tickle the um, the same itch that uh, magic players get to scratch, where you have so many cards and you have so many options on how to build a deck, um, you know. And that's where people can watch any of your YouTube sites to kind of find out more about the how and the why you do that. Um, and then finally, the cooperative aspect—the fact that when you do the adventure, you have this rich story. It's exciting and and slightly terrifying with a lot of choices and replay that you're sharing with your partner, your friends, bonding with strangers. Uh, it has everything. So anyway, sorry, I wanted to make sure that I said yeah, what I say to everybody. I, I agree with you on that social thing. Like I mostly play Arkham solo, but 
it is definitely quite a different experience when you get to play with other people that camaraderie because it, it is a co-op game you know when when you pull a token that helps you succeed on something where you had a very long shot to succeed on everybody cheers at the same time it's it really brings you guys together or when you pull that auto fail and you know just it's a miserable uh, defeat it's still hilarious and everybody gets to have a good time about just how crazy the situation was so the social aspect of it is definitely something that I really appreciate, even though I don't get to experience it as often. But I do enjoy the game solo as a completely different type of thing, too. Absolutely. You know, and, and we also have with us a solo expert slash octagon uh, expert, Man from Lang, who has done, if you haven't seen it yet, Whisper in the Darkness is really awesome. You get to watch all the plays go through. You get to hear the metagame. But um, what would you say as far as solo play or octagon play, Man from Lang? Well, I think the thing that attracted me to the game, I mean, I've played most of the Arkham Files games at this point, and um, I think the, the narrative of the game is, is one of its strong suits. The, if you've ever read any of uh, Lovecraft's stories or his uh, or related authors, I mean, you're basically playing out those stories um, with a great deal of replayability. Uh, mechanically, I think the game, like most of the Arkham Files games, is at its heart, it's a race. And uh, you are trying to, to go as fast as feasibly, feasibly possible to, to complete the scenario before the scenario defeats you. And uh, so the the quicker you go, often the better off you are because the uh, because the the weight of the uh, the weight of the game will crush you if you take uh, too much time. That's definitely a good way of looking at it. But the uh, I mean, it's it's both it's it's very well balanced for for both solo and multiplayer play. I know Vase and I play mostly solo. The uh, and there's different deck building choices depending on whether which format you're playing in. If you're playing in solo, you need to build decks that are a little more decks that can do everything well. Whereas once you get into the uh, multiplayer format, you can specialize a lot more and and uh, focus on uh, one aspect of the game, one or two aspects, whether whether that be fighting or gathering clues or evading enemies and do that uh, and do that one thing really really well whereas if you to do if you were to do that in in solo you would uh, not uh, fare quite as well the next question would be okay you're a new player some jerk at a game store or some friend from Red Deer or uh, a cook or, or maybe even a telephone salesperson. Somebody gets you to play this game because they say it's amazing, blah, blah, blah. you got to buy it. So you buy the core game. You have the core game. You try it. You like it. What should be your very next step? Should it be to get a second core set? Should it be to get a certain scenario, a standalone? So personally, I... I bought two core sets after learning of the um i guess issue or not really issue but they 
they really only intended it to be for two players, and I originally brought it to my game group of four players and realized the folly when I only purchased one copy on Amazon. So I ran down to my local game store, and thankfully they had a second copy. Everybody watched me play. Yeah, so I think if you're if you're playing with a group of players, it's necessary that you buy a second core box. And, and even if you're playing by yourself, having two copies of really a lot of the game's essential staples for player cards, um, you know, makes deck building that much more robust and a richer experience, in my opinion. And then later on, once you start to buy more deluxe boxes, you'll have extra copies of encounter cards from the core set that you can quickly swap, uh, swap in and out of um, particular scenarios that you may enjoy playing over and over again. But what do you, what do you guys think? I was going to say, Vase, what do you think about the question of what to buy next. Do you think people should jump at a second core set before uh, a deluxe yeah. expansion? Yeah, I still think a second core set should be your first purchase. Um, that may change with the new investigator decks that have been announced, but that's for another time. But as of right now, yeah, I think a second core set is integral. Like Nate said, a lot of staple cards, the core set only comes with one copy of each card. Is is Am I right on that? Can someone double check me on that? It, I think it comes with like two copies of some of the neutral cards, but yeah, cards, yeah, of all the class cards, it only comes with one copy. One copy, of each. which if anyone who is new to the game um, has not played a card game or, or a deck building type game, <clears throat> having one copy of a card in a thirty card deck is usually not a good idea if you want to be if you want to see it consistently throughout your game. So. You want to have the two copies of, a, of specific cards that that you really want your deck to be built around. So having that second core set will enable you to do that. Plus, it'll enable you to make multiple decks if you're playing multiplayer and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I still think a second core set is very important. Sure. To be fair, this breaks the rule of when you play the game and upgrade a card and add it to your deck, then you won't see it. Like, I just spent five experience on this, and then you just never draw it. <laughs> because, of course not. <laughs> that can happen, but... Uh, Man from Lang, uh, going back to you, do you think a second core set is the first thing someone should get when they start to get serious, or would you recommend a standalone or an expand, uh, deluxe box? Uh, I think I think it's a little more complicated now that the, the game has been going on for as long as it has. I think initially a second core set was the the obvious choice. But now I think that that the game has has grown. If you if you have a particular class that you're interested in playing, um, you may want to look at at a different product. And because you you do get the full playset of cards, um, it's a little bit tricky because the a lot of the cards are spread out over different mythos packs, and and while the there's this temptation, and I mean to play everything sort of in you know, you play you, you buy your core set, then you pick up Dunwich and play through that, and then you you play everything sequentially. Uh, like if you're playing, say, if you really like the Mystic class, picking up another core set is is a good idea. But then you also want to look at some of the other packs because they have really good Mystic cards in them. And those packs aren't necessarily 
um, in deluxe boxes or in if you were to play sequentially, it would be some time before you actually picked up those cards. Yeah, very good point. So I think you I think you do need to sort of consider if there's a particular class that you enjoy playing, then you may want to find out what the what the good cards are and then uh, seek out the packs that those cards are in. If you, if you're on a limited budget, that is. Nathan, what are your thoughts? And it, do you think there are pros and cons to both buying a corset, a second corset, as your next purchase, versus buying a deluxe expansion? Well, and I battle this every single day, right? Because I sell at my game store when we have it, and I have people order twenty to forty copies of the core game because we sell so much. But um, I, I want players or I want customers to feel like we're, it's not just a cash grab. Like, I want them to be happy. So I say, try the game. Here's the core set. Here's some websites. Here's several podcasts that I recommend. Um, And I'm glad to point this episode out to newer players now because that is the point of what we're doing today. But I, you know, I tell them when you're ready to get a second core set, you know, in this box, you will get one machete. Now, taboo list aside, you ideally want two machetes if you play a guardian. In this box, you'll get a shriveling. If you play a mystic, you probably want two shrivelings. You know, and these are just general things I tell people. But if we have them, I do recommend standalones. You know, uh, Guardians of the Abyss, Carnival of Horrors, um, Curse of the Ruguru, uh, even the new uh, Murder at the Excelsior. All great options if people are on a budget or they just want to get more content, especially if they're solo players, right? But when they want to ratchet it up in the next step and they want to, to, like you said, see those cards more, have more consistency, build better decks, definitely play with you know more players, then I would definitely recommend the core set, uh, second core set. You know, and I think, I think uh, Man From Lang touched on it, if I remember correctly, but instead of going the standard Dunwich next, Oftentimes, we won't have the exact ones in stock that I want to show. So what I'll do is I'll ask people if they want a challenge, uh, because then I'd say the Forgotten Age. If they want a certain uh, type, you know, like, hey, do you like witches? Do you like tarot? Do you like <clears throat> kind of a lot of people have been going with Dream Eaters because they like that concept of otherworldly, you know, that kind of darker Oz Alice in Wonderland experience where you go to the other realm. Um, if I had my druthers, I would show Path to Carcosa to everybody, but oftentimes we don't have it in stock. So ultimately, I've got to feel the, the, the customers out, player out, but always start with the base. Maybe get a second one if you start to get serious. I do like to push the, the deluxe for more player care, more investigator options. When I say, hey, if you get this box, you can have five new investigator choices. Boom. You you double the game's excitement instantly, right? Um, but with the new investigator um, starter decks coming out, I think that'll get veterans excited because they get new content. And I think that'll be a good way to segue. Uh, is that the right word? No. To, uh, to entice newer players to jump in when there's been a lot of content. 
But I think that's also where I mean it, it. It's very helpful if you have have a community that can support you because, say, if you go to pick up another, I mean, I think we all know that not all all investigators are created equal, and so if there is a particular investigator that you like, um, go for it. But if it really sort of depends if you've got a group to play with, then certain investigators are going to be better than others. And then if you're playing solo, you sort of have to pick and choose which investigator that, uh, that you want to, uh, specialize in. So if you, if you, I think if you pick up a deluxe expansion thinking all five of these investigators are going to be equally good at, at the format that I'm playing at, um, you may end up disappointed and, and somewhat frustrated. So if you've got if you've got a group that can sort of steer you in the right direction and say, hey, maybe you don't want to play skids solo, um, but skids in multiplayer is fine, then uh, that's helpful. And there's a lot of resources out there that can that can point you in, in those directions. Just like when I was saying, if you, if there's a particular class you want, you sort of need to know which cards, um, work best in that class before you just run out and buy a bunch of mythos packs, uh, to get, to, just because they have say mystic cards or, or whatnot in them. You want to, to target the, uh, right. Good use. Target the particular is a very strong word. Instead of just bulk buy, get everything. Yeah, and then I, I like how you mentioned Finn. You're like, yeah, hey, check Finn out. Oh, look at that willpower. It's pretty bad, huh? Well, hey, there's also, um, or did I say Finn? You I said Finn, yeah. Skids, yeah. Skids, look at that willpower, and then you're like, wait a second, check Finn out, and you're like, hold my Earl Grey, check out Calvin, and then just make people be like, what? I mean, <laughs> just that. It actually kind of makes skids look strong. Yeah, I think there's that there's that initial shock when you when you get the core set and you're looking at the investigators and you see someone like Wendy who is has a woeful combat score, or Skids who has a woeful willpower score, and you wonder to yourself, how could I ever play an investigator like this? And in a core set only format. Um, you're probably right. A lot of those, some of those investigators are more challenging to play than ones with a more balanced stat line. But in the case of somebody like, uh, like Wendy or not Wendy, but, uh, Daisy, she gets a lot better once you purchase a few packs from the Dunwich legacy, say. And uh, and Agnes, a lot of the there's a lot of the Dunwich Legacy is a real goldmine for for Mystic cards. So it's kind of interesting that you you say that you wouldn't buy products necessarily sequentially because I kind of did the opposite experience when I first got into the game. I bought two core sets and then I I bought a, a deluxe expansion. And then I, I liked it, but it, I was I was more interested in developing the roster of investigators, so I ended up uh, purchasing the other deluxe expansions first. So I was curious what you guys think about buying the buying all the deluxe boxes versus buying like a whole campaign's worth at a time. Huh. 
That's a good way to go about it. I never thought of doing that. That um, it it gets you a bunch more investigators that you can play with, and the deluxe box has more player cards than a typical mythos pack. So you're definitely doing yourself a favor if that's your goal. Is deck building is you know one of the more important things versus running through a story uh, episodically. So. If deck building is extremely important, then that, that is a good way to go about it, I think. That's uh, something I hadn't thought about. Yeah, and I think the the scenarios in the deluxe boxes tend to be some of the stronger scenarios in every campaign. They're the scenarios that I go back to probably more often than, say, the sixth Mythos pack of a particular cycle. I seem to rarely get to play those ones, but the scenarios in the deluxe box I'll play over and over and over again. So you really get a, a lot of good value from the deluxe boxes. Yeah, I agree with you completely. The deluxe, I think every expansion, uh, one or both of the scenarios in the deluxe boxes are my favorites from that expansion, or at least close to my favorites. Mm-hmm. And not only, not only that too, but, you know, the the player cards in the uh, deluxe expansions are usually catered towards the investigators that are included in the box too. So you end up getting a lot of the staples like for that particular investigator. Like for instance, in the circle undone, there's a lot of, a lot of cards that are kind of specifically geared towards the rogue investigator, Preston, who, whose whole thing is acquiring a bunch of money and leveraging that money to, to boost his, woeful stats to put it in manful Lang's words so so typical for the current political environment <laughs> <laughs> just throw money at it hope it, hope it sticks um you know uh, man from Lang touched on um the um you know the the deluxe boxes and getting a lot of value out of the specific scenarios and i think um i just briefly want to touch on that because new players a very common question is how's the replay value of the game? What do you guys think in terms of replay value, especially those who just buy a second core set and only have those three scenarios or buy a couple of deluxe boxes and only have two scenarios from each? What are your thoughts on replay value for new players? I think it kind of depends on how you, uh, you know, what you're looking to get out of the game. You know, if you're, if you're looking to, you know, finish the story of a particular campaign, then just having the deluxe box isn't really gonna isn't really gonna satiate your appetite. But if you're you know, if you're just looking to experiment with particular investigators in scenarios, then having a lot of options available to you in that regard is going to feel very rewarding. So it it kind of depends on what you're looking to get out of out of the experience. But I would say overall that yeah, I think there's a lot of replay uh, replayability just in the two uh, scenarios you get in a particular deluxe expansion. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on on how what you want out of the game. I know some people get into the game because they they want the story, and so the only way to really finish the story is to pick up all of the pick up a deluxe box and all of the mythos packs for that particular campaign. Whereas I think as as myself goes i sort of as much as i like the story i the scenarios i enjoy the most i enjoy them from a, a mechanical standpoint and i want to 
play them over and over again because I think they're mechanically sound. So for a while, I tended to play a lot more standalone where I would um, basically cherry pick the scenarios that that I enjoyed and I wouldn't necessarily, I would rarely play a campaign because it's a little more time consuming. So during the Dunwich Legacy say, I really liked Blood on the Altar. So I played that a ton. Whereas Undimensioned and Unseen, I've played a lot less. So I think there's this, I think there's sort of a, you know, there's this, because the, the way the, the game is structured, there's a temptation to say, okay, I've picked up the Dunwich Legacy, so now I have to pick up all six Mythos packs. And I don't think that's necessarily if, that you have to do that. I think you can pick and choose the ones that you want to play and, and, uh, and then as you if you're especially in these times if you're short on uh, short on cash and can't afford to say drop i don't know what an entire but it, what an entire campaign would be worth but you know more than 100 bucks i think it's like 100 120 something like that you know pick up one scenario that you're going to get a lot of replay value out of i think would be a better choice than yeah i find myself kind of doing the same same thing that you said man from lang i but maybe that maybe that's just because I've played all the scenarios and have experienced them blind. But yeah, I tend to play a lot more standalone and just kind of cherry pick the scenarios. I really like to play a lot from a mechanical perspective. Um, so I think yeah, it kind of it depends on like you said what you're going for in an experience. Um, but on to that point, what do you what do you guys think about the return to boxes as far as? Um, new players purchasing a return to box. So say if you say if you purchased all of Dunwich or all of Carcosa and you really like that particular campaign, would you would you recommend that that player purchase the return to box for said campaign, or would you recommend that they they use that investment elsewhere? Nathan, uh, nice. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think the only problem with this 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 discussion line is this assumes that everything's available. You know, like you look on the Facebook group, and right now I'm looking at an example here, 17 minutes ago, trying to find Path to Carcosa full cycle, can't find anywhere, can anyone help? So, I mean, sometimes it's not a matter of of what exactly you can get so much as what you can find, right? If someone, if, if we're at a, a low point, like after the holidays or, oh, I don't know, during a pandemic, where all the factories have uh, shut down and the places stopped shipping. And I have a, a brand new player who's like, hey, I'm really enjoying this game. You don't have a lot of product on the shelf. And I have a return to the Night of the Zealot and they've got the core box. I'm like, you know, try the Night of the Zealot. There's going to be, there's choices to make on how to make it harder or easier, but it will give you additional content. It, it will let you play these differently, you know, so that's kind of a toss-up for me, you know, on what to get. I do like the return to boxes. I don't really care about the extra player cards personally. I just like the extra content and the chance to like go back and fix "quote unquote" stuff. What they did with Undimension and Unseen was great, you know, and I like what they did with the the beginning box. And there's no blowgun coming out 
for Return to pa- uh, the Forgotten Age. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd be really excited. Um, but can you can you explain a little bit for the new players what the Return to boxes actually are or what they do in any way? Yeah, so <clears throat> a Return to box. I don't. I guess they make they can make it more difficult, but they don't always. It's kind of, kind of like some of the nightmare decks for Lord of the Rings. Um, simply put, when you get a return to box, the first and foremost thing you're getting is you're getting storage, right? You get a nice, uh, sturdy box that has a cool graphic on the end, like a card catalog. And it comes with inserts for the, um, the different sets within that deluxe, uh, for the different, uh, what do you call them? Not factions, but encounter, encounter sets. Um, you're also going to get uh, upgraded player cards. Oftentimes, they're going to take cards that aren't that popular and give you um, kind of better versions of them, different versions of them. Sometimes they'll pick a few cards that are a little more popular. Um, you're also going to get more content for the entire cycle. So for you know, Return to the Night of the Zealot, sure, you've got your first three adventures. You're, you're getting upgraded. But with... Dunwich, you're getting all eight, you know, two in the main box and then the six additional with little bits here and there. Um, Sometimes it's something very minor, a few location cards. Sometimes they've gone back and reworked the mechanics of something. Um, Overall, it's just more content is better because it gives more choices. But I'm I'm a pretty big fan. But you pretty much have to have the the deluxe or the entire campaign or, or whatnot in order for the return to box to actually be useful uh, in terms of that. So you're not getting a full scenario in the return to box. You're no, basically. But, but once again, supply and demand, if everything is out, if something's really hard to get and you have the return to box, A, you're going to have that storage for when you do get stuff. B, uh, you're going to be supporting the hobby, which is, you know, if you like the game, you're going to want to support it with sales. But also, you're going to have the return to for the stuff you have. If I have Path to Carcosa and the first couple scenarios and I've played them and played them and I'm digging them, but I don't want to do or I can't do all of them, I can use that return to box to go back and replay those and, and experience them a little differently. What are your thoughts, man, from lying on the return to boxes? Um, I'm sort of torn on them. I mean, I like coming from Lord of the Rings... Um, LCG where uh, the nightmare decks were if you really enjoyed a scenario you could jump in and play them play a harder version of that scenario Um, the return to boxes are I mean they're nice that they have the the player cards although I wouldn't consider the player cards essential Um, I think with the exception of maybe return to the night of the zealot um, I think they're probably one of the last purchases you would want to make um while they do change up the scenarios uh a little bit the uh there's also a chance that you won't see any of the new cards so you could play a scenario and it would be basically the same um i don't think they change them up dramatically they tweak them here and there but I think that the Return of the Night of the Zealot box is a good one just because it does turn the gathering from a very from a very intro scenario into a like a full-fledged scenario. So you're really getting 
um, something that you can play repeatedly. And then um, Midnight Masks is a, is a very solid scenario, scenario, as is The Devourer Below. So it's sort of, you know, if you've just got the core box, you're you're really transforming that first scenario into something a little more meaty. But I think if you're if you don't have, um, say, a full cycle of something, you're not going to get as much value from a return to box as, say, if you went and purchased a a mythos pack from another from another uh, campaign. And and man from Lang, while we're kind of on the uh, subject of a particular scenario, what a, what about standalones? Would you would you recommend somebody pick up a standalone before they pick up a return to box? Uh, I don't really play the standalones a lot. Um, so I mean, they're I enjoy them, but I wouldn't. I think there's. Um, I guess I like a lot of the the mythos pack scenarios more than I like the standalones. Like I think when I think back in the core set days when you basically had the core set um and the Dunwich Legacy box and then Curse of the Rougarou was the only standalone available. People were so hungry for content that that people were really wanted to pick up Curse and and play it a lot because <laughs> there were weren't many options besides the core set scenarios to play with. And, uh, but I, I don't uh, really play the standalones all that often. So, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, because you're right. Yeah. When the game first came out, it was like curse carnival back to the core curse carnival. Um, I would like to point out that, uh, I think one reason I don't mind the standalones is because I like a lot of the fan made content. So if anyone wants to to do any fan made uh, content and have it printed off either at home or like Office Depot or Kinkos, uh, ArkhamCentral.com has like thirty plus adventures that, like you were saying, are, are standalone esque. Uh, there are a few campaigns, but it's mostly a one time experience. But it also has really good links for new players to check out uh, where to get bags made, where to get special mats made. Uh, blogs, podcasts like ours, uh, etc. There's a lot going on for newer players on that site too. So use that as a resource. Speaking of resources, there's also uh, Vase. You mentioned the FFG tutorial. Do you want to cover that real quick? Yeah, on YouTube, and we'll link it in the show notes, but uh, Fantasy Flight Games, the makers of Arkham Horror, uh, made a video tutorial for Arkham Horror, the card game, and it's fantastic. The narrator is very dramatic <laughs> so it's he's very entertaining to listen to uh but it's very uh very easy to follow very easy to understand uh the tutorials what i use to learn the game um because the, you know you read through the instructions but you always make mistakes on some of the rules and certain things come up where you're like oh how how did that work and then you read through it and you're like i still don't get it so that fft tutorial is fantastic it, it kind of lets you go through the entire setup um, through uh, the gathering and how, you know, how combat works, how deck building works. I mean, it's it's really fantastic. So I highly recommend anyone who's brand new to the game to check out that tutorial. And it's not very long either. It's uh, I think it's 20 minutes if I'm if I'm right. I could be completely wrong on that. But 
Um, for what it is, it's not a very long video. You can sit through it and learn the game along with it while you're playing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really going to show you the ropes for the basics. Um, but then once you've, once you've kind of gotten a grasp of the basics, there's plenty of other uh, content creators and such, Man From Lang and uh, Lost in Time and Space, um, where they'll show you like different different rules, clarifications, and different cards and how they work and things like that. So once you've learned the game, just do your own research on YouTube and podcasts and all that. There's a lot of great ones from the community. I think one of the important things for, for new players is the the way the game, the rule book is structured. There is a learn-to-play guide and then a rules reference. And I think uh, the learn-to-play guide is helpful in learning the game because they they simplify it and and streamline it quite a bit but the the quicker that you can make the jump to the rules reference i think the better off you'll be because the the rules reference really gets into the meat of the game and uh, provides a lot of the insight into the sort of tips and tricks that that you can do that that aren't really included in the core set or sorry, not the corset, but the uh, the learn to play rules. Yeah, but it's not a cover to cover type reading, right? It's like a... no, no the 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 rules reference is more um, if there's a particular topic that you're that you're interested in, say how do enemies function or how does how do I advance the act deck and stuff like that, then then the rules reference is helpful. In, in clarifying a lot of those questions that you may have. You know, I think there's one, one example that I always come back to is the, uh, like, which cards can you trigger? And if you, if you learn the, learn to, if you read the learn to play guide, it's, it's usually like, well, your own cards, obviously. But then once you get into the rules reference, it turns out, well, you can actually trigger cards controlled by other players on occasion and sometimes it's very beneficial to do that but um and the and the rules reference really goes into when you can do that and which cards are you can do that with yeah and on that note too the faq on ffg's website is also a great resource for newer players it goes over some of the funky card interactions and clarifies um clarifies some of the additional rules So now that we've gone over what a new player should purchase when first getting into the game, why don't we actually talk about playing the game itself? So there are five main classes of Investigator in the Arkham LCG. Um, Why don't we go ahead and take some time to kind of go over the basics of what each of these classes do and what they're looking to accomplish when playing the game. We'll um, We'll start with Nate with the Survivors. What do Survivors do? Uh, so the survivor class is kind of the the odd man out, so to speak. While while a lot of the other classes have a particular um, stat that they're focused on, the survivor class is the class that's all about making the most out of a bad situation. So they're all about um, making the best of failure with cards like uh, Take Heart or um, oh, I'm losing blanks on on fail cards, but. But basically, their their whole idea is that they're um, uh, 
they're going to try to make the most of a bad situation. So um, Wendy, for instance, is uh, really good at, um, you know, making sure that she she passes the test that she needs to pass and is okay with failing everything else. Um, her, her special ability, for instance, lets her discard a card from her hand to draw a new token um, when she, when she uh, makes a test. And um, there are also other, other investigators that deal with discarding cards from your hand, like Ashcan Pete from the Dunwich Legacy, who's all about using his special ally Duke to um, to do most of the heavy lifting for him, um, so so they're kind of a strange uh, amalgamation of janky sort of stuff. Um, they're also involved with recursion. Uh, Yorick from the Path to Carcosa uh, likes to um, get a- uh, assets into his discard pile and then defeat enemies and recover them from the discard pile. So so they're all about. Uh, that as well, um, but why don't we why don't we talk about the the guardian class, the class that's most known for for killing enemies? Right. Well, I mean, and that's a, that's a good point. I do love Wendy's dexterity. That's something that playing a lot of guardians, I don't often get to utilize. Um, <clears throat> so, two of the main things that the game tends to focus on, especially for newer players is uh, the investigating and the fighting. And guardians excel at the fighting, sometimes the investigating. Um, So their fighting stat tends to be pretty high, around a four in most cases. Um, And that's nice because there's there's always going to be some type of monster somewhere. So they are going to kind of come up, whether that be one of the weaknesses that's haunting you. uh, What is it? uh, Stubborn detective or... The Silver Twilight Acolyte, or in a lot of cases, there's going to be a lot of creatures coming at you. Um, Roland Banks, that comes in the core set, has a decent intelligence, which is great for investigating, but of course his fight powers of four, and uh, several of his abilities trigger off of defeating creatures. Um, for example, using the evidence card, uh, he gets clues when he defeats an enemy at a location um guardians are pretty straightforward in general to play so if you have people that are not that comfortable with the game or are just trying to feel things out guardians and seekers tend to be pretty a pretty safe bet to go with um whereas you know mystics that man from lang will get into soon um tend to require more and like you were saying survivors being the odd person out um you've kind of got to figure out the the beat to to play those with but um yeah nice safe chance they can soak some damage they tend to be a little weaker when it comes to willpower uh pardon me sanity so you are going to want to watch out for grabbing things like an elder sign upgrade or having several allies out uh, later with Grisma, but initially they can take some soak because um, it is a little easier, I think, to go insane on a Guardian compared to other classes. Um, Vase, do you want to go ahead and cover Seekers? So the uh, Seeker class is the one that picks up all the clues. They're great at investigating in general. Uh, Daisy, the Seeker that comes in the corset, 
has an investigate value of five, which is extremely high and really powerful. The seeker class uh, specializes in picking up clues, uh, drawing cards. They're really good at drawing cards and searching through decks. So it really fits into this theme of like research and so on. Um, the card pool, as you get more sets, it expands into some really cool ideas. So it keeps the seekers from being boring. Um, there's cards that kind of fit into this uh, investigative or like research role where you'll get a you'll get a card that's kind of cryptic where you'll have to discover the runes. It's kind of like a mini mission. And when you do, then you get access to more powerful cards or, you know, discover the formula, things like that. So if you like having like a mini game within the game, the secret class is also pretty cool at doing that. Uh, it keeps them interesting because there are times where you won't be investigating. And since seekers are generally not good at combat, you're going to need something else to do when you're not fighting or when you're not uh, looking for clues. Uh, playing solo, I think, a seeker, they do tend to struggle a little bit. They're great at advancing the act and the agenda and winning you the game very quickly. But um, if you're stuck with an enemy, generally it's it's the end of you right there. But in a multiplayer game, you can really specialize in that and you can literally be the difference between winning the game for your group or losing very badly. <clears throat> in a solo game, you really have to be careful about how you build the seeker, uh, look really into their card pool, what access they have to other card pools in order to kind of mitigate that big weakness of not being able to handle a creature. So the Mystic class, if you're, if you're interested in searching through decks, card draw, uh, helping the, the team advance the act without fighting creatures, then this is the class that you'd want to be playing. Man from Lang, tell us a little bit about Mystics. Well, the uh, the Mystic class is for those out there, if you really enjoy throwing spells around, then uh, you may want to consider the Mystic class. They uh, tend to have very high willpower, and they use that willpower to, uh, to investigate, fight, and evade. Uh, usually using uh, other cards in combination with their high willpower. They tend to have uh, a little bit lower intellect, uh, sort of average to below average intellect. So they're not great at, uh, at discovering clues, but uh, that's what willpower is for. Uh, the same goes for um, their combat and agility. Both tend to be fairly average as well. They, uh, for the most part, have... Um, uh, lower health and uh, high sanity so they can take a lot of horror uh, which uh, is often uh, some of their cards inflict horror on themselves uh, which they can use for uh, in the case of Agnes to uh, deal additional damage uh, Mystics tend to be a little bit slower than the other classes because they have uh, because they need uh, in addition to their willpower they usually use other cards to uh, achieve that so if you don't draw the cards that you need say it can be uh, a little more difficult for them to investigate so uh, they can be a little bit slower they can also be a little bit uh, uh, hard for, hard up for resources which you use to pay for the cards because many of their cards are quite expensive so as excuse me as you're playing it can be a, you have to make some choices about which uh, how you spend those resources to get the the biggest bang for your buck. 
the other uh, main component of besides spells uh, is uh, chaos bag manipulation. So if you enjoy playing around with the uh, the odds of the game, then uh, the Mystic class is uh, one for you because they have a uh, both investigators and uh, a bunch of cards that help you um, change the odds. You know, and I tell people it's like a, a, a lock. There's several tumblers and a lock before it opens. And mystics are kind of like that in order to kind of stabilize, like you were saying. You just have to wait for the pieces to fall into place. And it can be a frustrating game, especially telling newer players, don't get too frustrated because there's going to be some games where you just can't stabilize before you get thwacked. Yeah, I think they require they require a little more patience to uh, to get the most out of. And there will be games where you simply don't you simply don't draw the cards that you need in order to uh, to get going. I think they've gotten better. They've certainly gotten better over the years. And they've it used to be, say, Mystics had one card that they could use to fight with. And uh, now they have uh, have plenty of those, so it's it's gotten a bit easier to build a to build a mystic deck these days. And then the final class is the rogue class, and they're the class all about money. So they like to accumulate tons of resources with cards like Hot Streak or investments from the Circle Undone, and they they use this money to to generate some sort of advantage, whether it's with Skids and his ability to spend two resources to gain additional actions, or if it's with um, Preston and his um, his family inheritance, which gains him a bunch of resources every single turn that he can use for a card like um, Well Connected, which lets you, or, or rather it gives you a huge boost depending on how many resources you have um, they also have cards that deal with evasion. That's their that's their primary stat, is the evasion stat or the agility stat rather. So rogues are particularly good at um, dodging enemies and accumulating resources with that. With cards like Watch This or um, Slip Away, which are great options, and they're also pretty good at getting clues with cards like Lock Picks or Intel Report. So they can they can fill sort of a generalist role in your in your multiplayer group, and as far as playing rogue solo, it's a bit of a varied experience depending on which investigator you go with, but and what cards you pick, <laughs> yeah, and what cards you pick. But rogues are generally very flashy investigators. They're all about, um, as I said earlier, generating resources, evading enemies, and then. Uh, they're also, I would call the combo class, as they have a lot of the combo class. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah, they have a lot of cards that um, that can do huge things depending on whether or not you succeed a particular test. Um, they also have this mini mechanic with uh, succeeding by two or more, or the over succeed mechanic. So a lot of their cards will gain additional benefits depending on whether or not you over succeed a test. Whether it's a card like Quick Thinking that gives you an additional action. Or uh, I think it's pickpocketing. After you evade an enemy by two or more, you get to draw a card and gain two resources. So, so if you like, um, if you like being slippery and pickpocketing enemies and uh, helping your team get clues, then the rogue class is for you.
So now that we've covered all of the major classes of the game, what are some what are uh, what are some general guidelines you guys uh, tend to gravitate towards when building building a deck for the Arkham LCG? So when I deck build, I um, generally I'll like start just picking cl- uh, cards from the investigator's card pool that I think would be helpful. Um, no, I take that back. First, I come up with a concept. So if I want let's say to build a Carolyn Fern deck and I want to make it a, you know, willpower, you know, go spell slinging type of deck. Now, now that I've decided on that, then I'll just start adding cards into, into the deck that I think would fit into that theme or into, you know, that type of deck that I'm building. And then as I'm, as I'm adding cards, I'll usually notice that I have like 50 or 60 cards. So that's too much. So then I'll start removing cards that are non-essential or if there are cards that kind of do the same thing, um, but one does it better or uh, generally I feel will be better in most in more situations, then I'll take out the one that is less important and I'll start trimming the deck down that way. And as I'm doing that, I'm keeping an eye on balance in terms of slots. So like uh, accessory slot, hand slot, body slot. You don't want to put too many cards that are hand slot cards, let's say, because then chances are you're going to always have certain cards in your hand that you can't play because your hand slots are already taken. So I keep I keep an eye on that, keep those to a minimum. I keep an eye on uh, the number of uh, resources that each card costs. So as I'm cutting down cards, ArkhamDB.com uh, is a great resource for this because it gives you a quick, quick... Um, reference as to how what your average cost is for your cards and such um you want to keep your card cost low because again you'll be stuck with a hand of cards that you can't play if you pick cards that are really good but just too expensive that you you just won't have enough resources for so i keep all that into consideration and then eventually trim it down to 30. i'll test play the deck once i test play it then i know what needs to be tweaked and then i'll swap in and out based on that I know everyone does their deck building different, so I'm curious to hear how you guys do yours. I generally tend to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pick an investigator, and then from there, it'll it it depends on the campaign that I'm playing. But generally speaking, I tend to build my decks um, with the investigator's main ability in mind. So, for instance, if I'm building uh, an Ashcan Pete deck, for instance, uh, I tend to focus all of uh, most of my deck building strategy around his ability to be able to discard a card and get a benefit from it. Um, so so there are a numerous um, ways that you could go about doing that, but generally speaking, I like to to have that one that one kind of core idea in mind. and then from there, whether I'm playing solo or multiplayer, um, I'll add various uh, assets and skills and events into the deck. Um, if I'm playing solo, for instance, I'll try to balance my ability to combat enemies and uh, gather clues through investigation more half and half. Or if I'm playing multiplayer, I'll tend to focus you know, more in one direction over the other. And um, yeah, and then from there, you just, like Vase said, you want to make sure that you're your resource cost is low overall in your deck so that you're not uh, you're not bloated with a bunch of cards that you can't you can't use and same same goes for 
um, for slot management as well, since your investigator only has so many slots that they can fill, you don't want to be overburdened with cards that you can't play in your hand. Um, another thing that I'll consider too is the amount of uh, skill icons that are in my deck. I want to make sure that I have enough uh, skill icons that I can deal with um, certain threats that the encounter deck will present. Um, a lot of investigators tend to uh, be particularly bad either at willpower or agility, or in some instances both. And you need you need a way to deal with the encounter deck too. So that's also something that I consider when building my deck. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned Vase that you're you're the type of person that like gathers a whole bunch of cards and then trims them down. Where I'm kind of the opposite, where I I tend to be very frugal with what goes into the deck in the first place. Um, Nathan, what about you? How do you tend to go about building your decks? Oh, mine's very simple. Uh, I don't often build decks. I go to Arkham DB. Uh, quite simply, the deck building aspect for me, I can do it because I've played Magic for 20 plus years. But I don't really enjoy the deck building aspect as much as some people do. So I don't spend my energy doing that. I spend my energy creating terrain and setups, um, reading the story, doing fan-made content, and and engaging with the community. So uh, Arkham DB all the way. There are thousands at this point, I think, uh, great decks up on there. Sometimes I'll tweak some of them, but yeah, that's my default. And Man From Lang, I know you're a, you're a big proponent of gathering decks from Arkham DB and using them on stream as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I uh, I think uh, Arkham DB is a, is a great resource if you're if you're just looking for for a deck to play or just some ideas. There tends to be a lot of uh, untested decks up there, so uh, you sort of have to be careful about what you pick and choose. I think uh, one of the important things to, to mention is that if you're in a core set only environment, there isn't a lot of deck building to be done um, because of the limited card pool that you'll have. The You pretty much just take all the guardian cards in the box and say if you're playing Roland, who is, one of, who is the guardian investigator in the core set, you basically take all of the guardian cards and all of the seeker cards and mash them together and that is your deck. And uh, if you buy a second core set, then you can start to do a little bit more deck building by, say, removing some of the cards that aren't performing quite as well and replacing them with second copies of the cards that you want. Uh, and that goes for pretty much all of the investigators in the core set. There's there's not a great deal of, of varying strategies that you can do um, when you're deck building, uh, when I deck build, I tend to ask myself, I tend to focus on a few key things. The first is how am I going to investigate as a solo? Uh, since I play predominantly solo, I like to have, uh, the first thing I'll do is I'll go through and pick out how I'm going to gather clues because you can't win unless you gather clues effectively and efficiently. And sometimes Sometimes that just means your investigator has a high intellect, say uh, Daisy with her five. Uh, you don't have to really do add a lot of cards to, uh, to bolster that. So cards that both get you clues, get you multiple clues, stuff like that. Then I look at uh, how I'm going to gain resources. 
you get a resource every turn at, during the upkeep, but uh, most decks need to generate additional resources in order to uh, to function well. So I I'll go through and pick cards, uh, pick the ways that I'm going to generate those additional resources so I can afford to play the cards that I want. Uh, then I'll look at uh, something like card draw. Um, you do get a card during the uh, upkeep phase, but uh, drawing additional cards is always uh, always good in cards that... Uh, so packing extra card draw is very helpful because it will get you the cards you need faster. So I tend to look at... Uh, investigate. Uh, how am I going to investigate? How am I going to generate resources? How am I going to draw additional cards? And then I usually will pick, say, um, how I'm going to fight enemies or how I'm going to evade enemies and uh, focus on one of those. And uh, and then so adding combat cards after that. And I, I do apologize. I didn't mean to be arbitrary with my answer Uh just honest, but very quickly, um, based on what Cameron said, based on what Vase has said, etc., um, I have tended to focus on the character's main strength. So look at their ability, look at their Elder Sign ability, look at their key, most important stat, and build around that. And also, there's so many cards out there. If you're a newer player, you're not going to have the options. If you're if you start to build your card pool, decide if you want to have someone who does a special function that's just a supporting character. Look at your icons. Look at your cost or your curve. Um, once again, players that come in from a magic perspective will have that advantage. Uh, but just playing the game, testing decks out, you can become a, an expert from from you know zero to sixty pretty quickly. So. Anyway, I just wanted to add that addendum. Yeah, and how you build your deck will also depend on, you know, the campaign you're playing, the difficulty you're playing at, and as well as the player count. Moving on from deck building itself, what are some general gameplay guidelines that you would give to a new player? Uh, I know for me, I would... Um, I would state that if you're playing multiplayer, like Man from Lang said earlier, you can actually deal with threat cards in your your uh, fellow investigator's threat area, for instance. And generally, I would tell them that you want to prioritize getting clues, uh, managing enemies, and then um, from there dealing with whatever particular... Um, gimmick that the that the scenario is presenting you like for instance in the gathering there's a lot of there's a lot of ghoul enemies and willpower tests so you generally want to have willpower icons in your deck and you generally want to make sure that you pass particular uh, investigate checks etc etc um, and then from there uh, if you're if you're looking for a more casual experience I would tell you to play on an easier difficulty and if you're wanting more of a challenge to play on a harder difficulty. And I would also say to that new player that you're going to lose. You know, it's going to be a, a tough go if you decide to play at a higher difficulty and that that's okay, that it's not, um, it's not out of the ordinary for you to absolutely get crushed, say, in your first instance of the gathering. Um, 
but but what are some what are some general guidelines that you guys would give to newer players? For me, I think um, it's very easy to try and take a test and try to conserve cards in your hand, even if you know that your chances of, of making the test are pretty slim. So I think uh, it's a mistake that I still make quite a bit myself, but you know, being able to control yourself and not take tests unnecessarily because failing tests can be pretty detrimental to your advancement or your, um, what's the word I'm looking for, your tempo in the game. Uh, if you can't pass a test, you need to draw cards so you can get a, a card that's going to give you the icons you need to improve your chances to pass that test. You'll spend less actions doing that than you would, you know, keeping uh, on that test and failing over and over and over. I had a game in the Forgotten Age where my first attempt at investigating, it was like round one, and it w- it took me three rounds. It was like... I don't know, almost seven failures in a row to pick up one clue. And it was just brutal. I had to start over super bad. So it, it really can can mess with you and make you think, well, you know, it's an even test. Let me just try it uh, where I'm not I'm zero above the requirement. But that bag is going to it's going to hit you hard, like a zero against, a, you know, the same number is usually pretty bad odds for you when you pull that token. So you're better off drawing the card and ensuring that you're at least a little bit above that test when you take the test. Uh, yep, definitely good points. Um, and like like uh, Nate Lost in Time and Space started off saying, you are, you are going to lose sometimes. I think, you know, having some patience, having a, a sense of humor, um, being like, well, hey, last time the Rivers ran... Uh, red with our blood. Let's see if we could maybe only bleed out half as much this time. I mean, uh, one thing I, I think beginning players should know is that you will get frustrated. You will have a perfect plan start off great. Uh, you'll have a scenario start off great. And then all of a sudden, whereas one round you have zero creatures, the next round you have every creature in the deck possible on you, you know, um, but what I found from playing the game, the truth. <laughs> yep. What I found from playing the game uh, three to four times a week since it came out is that uh, hopeless situations sometimes have hope. Um, I have so many memories of pulling together with friends, or you know, if I'm doing solo, of just sticking with sticking with it and doing my best. And you know, you're going to get instant fail tokens pulled back to back. Sometimes you're going to get ridiculous resurges of of success and how did I solve that conundrum, you know? Um, Focus on learning the game when you play it. Focus on making less mistakes, which will help in the long run. And focus on being with your friends or just enjoying the flavor of the the game, the ambiance. And don't be afraid to drop down, uh, you know, the easy level uh, for a while or you know, if you really want to, if you just want to experience the story, make whatever house rules you want. It's a cooperative game meant for you to enjoy. There are no hard and fast rules that will stop you from doing that. Well, if you want to talk about a talk about a guy that's all too familiar with pulling multiple tentacles at a time, it'd be Man from Lang. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I pair I pull my fair share for sure. Uh, I just wanted to add something to further Vase's point is that 
that I think uh, when you start off, there's a, uh, one of the potential mistakes that new players make is the feeling that you've got to to crush every test that you take. And uh, I think uh, it helps if you have a little bit of understanding about the odds of drawing certain tokens from the chaos bag and the uh, good point uh, notion of diminishing returns. Because if you have, uh, generally speaking, if you're playing on easy or standard difficulty, if your skill value is too higher than the difficulty before the pull, you're in pretty good shape. Um, and then every icon you commit after that um, is subject to diminishing returns, so you're not getting as much bang for your buck after that. So while it's tempting, sometimes you're like, oh, I really need to pass this test. I'm two up. Maybe I should go three up. Going from two to three is not, you're not getting quite as good um, as you would say going from one to two. And then every icon you commit after that. So if you go four up, you're really at that point you're sort of wasting cards that you could could have saved for for other tests. So understanding the odds, the odds is uh, is quite helpful, and um, the odds change depending on the campaign that you're playing. Um, but generally, if your if your skill value is too higher than uh, than the difficulty of the test you're in pretty good shape um and like uh nate was saying like your best laid plans the chaos bag can ruin them because there is always a chance of failure and uh there's nothing you can do about that but moving on from that there is one last thing about general gameplay i do want to touch on and that's um when you're going through a campaign, how how do you guys plan on spending your experience? Do you guys have a a general overarching plan? Like you you want to upgrade into these cards specifically, or do you kind of take it as the campaign goes along? I know for me personally, I tend to have like a grand idea of what I want my deck to look like by a certain point. Um like, for instance, going back to Ashcan Pete, I would want cornered in my deck as soon as possible, and, like, my whole plan for the deck is centered around my ultimate um, fleshed-out, experienced version of my deck. But I'm curious to, to know how you guys go through that um, experience-spending process. I'm with you. I, uh, I usually know what cards I want to upgrade to, um, so I just keep, like, the stack of cards that that I want to buy and then I'll buy from those depending on what I need to shore up on as the uh, campaign advances. So I'm, I'm identical to you in terms of how, how I handle upgrades. What about you, man from Lang? Uh, I think a lot of players generally have a plan. It's like, I want to purchase the big gun or I want to buy the big spell or in the case of rogues, I want to get extra actions or, or whatnot. But I find that as I play, um, it really depends on how much experience I get, and then I'll make decisions because sometimes if you take too much damage or horror or uh, trauma, then you're suddenly forced to, to upgrade into cards that you may not have uh, planned on. But I think for the most part, most players sort of they have a deck that they want to play by scenario five or six and uh 
and it just depends on say if you if you don't earn quite as much experience in one scenario as you expected you may have to say only upgrade one version of the card and uh, maybe save a little bit of experience for the next time so you can upgrade the other one the nice thing about the game is that we're getting a lot more cards that that let you um, step up to some of those bigger upgrades so there'll be you'll have say a card like shriveling there's shriveling zero there's shriveling three and there's shriveling five so you don't have to spend five experience points right off the bat. You can say spend three and then spend two later. So you can upgrade your deck more slowly. So formal. Uh, wow. No, really solid points. Like I, I find myself agreeing with a lot of what people say, but I mean, all those points were awesome. I like the concept that Vase said of having like a pool of cards kind of set aside and you pick from there. And then I also like man from Lang's comment that, you know, you kind of got to dance to the beat of, you know, hey, I'm going to do this. Wait a second. I just took a bunch of trauma. I should probably buy this. Um, I'm always torn. I feel like I have the, you know, investigator on, on one shoulder and elder god on the other shoulder uh, whispering in my ear whenever I upgrade. And I feel that um, I always go back and forth between, okay, what do I need to get? What would help my character? What would help with this scenario? And dynamite. Let's get that shotgun, you know, <laughs> whatever whatever fun thing you can get. Uh, I do a balance of the both, you know, when I when I upgrade. I definitely go practical, and then I'm like, hey, and I'm just going to take this Storm of Spirits because I think it'll be fun. And then we've kind of mentioned various player resources as well uh, over, the, uh, over the course of the past hour and a half or so, um, but I'm going to just quickly touch over them again. Uh, so there's Arkham DB. Uh, ArkhamDB.com is a great website for for looking at um, for looking at the cards in the various packs and deluxe boxes and whatnot. And it's also a great resource for building your own decks um, online that you can you can share with your friends or save for your own personal enjoyment. Um, from there, there's the official FFG website along with their YouTube channel that has the uh, tutorial and various live stream events that they do. And then there's other great content creators and podcasts like the Mythos Busters or Drawn to the Flame or the Miskatonic University Radio Podcast and obviously us, duh. Um, but let's uh, let's move on to uh, the community spotlight, Nathan. What you uh, what you got for us this episode? I just wanted to touch on, I've got a little bit of news of sorts. Um, I have Momo Monster Co., which I've talked about before, uh, Andresia Garnier out of Canada. She does fantastic mats. She has physical mats now. But she's also going to be launching the next phase or evolution of her online store, which will include, and I can't give any pictures or tell too much yet, but she's going to focus on making stuff that any of us would be proud to wear to a formal occasion. She's going to make some fancy stuff. Um, you know, I can't once again go, go into it quite yet, but uh, I've seen a few concepts and she's busy working on getting um, stuff up on her site. So when that comes up, I'll let everybody know. Very exciting. Uh, but this week I wanted to focus on Needle and Threadly out of Texas. Uh, Daphne Brune. Um, makes handmade bags uh you can 
you know, chat with her. She's very good about um, picking out the exact thread and making sure you have the right dongle or silver skull on the edge of the thread, uh, the composition. She'll send pictures before it gets made. You can go over what you want written and what font and what size. The bag quality is fantastic. Her communication's fantastic. Uh, every time we chat, we involve or we talk about some kind of nerddom. Uh, anyway, lots of lots of fun. Really great person. Really great store. You can find her on Etsy under Needle and Threadly, uh, and she has taken a very small break, but she'll be back according to the website tomorrow. So. Do go check out her bags. Um, she's awesome to work with. So, hey, for uh, those of you that uh, we're going to start the music, if we haven't yet. For those of you that don't know, we um, we like to ask questions. Basically, I've, I've gotten it into three main categories. Uh, we deal with the picture, we deal with the text, and we deal with the um, the icons on the card. So I'm going to take the cards that I have here, and I'm going to shuffle them up. I've got cards from each of the five classes, as well as um, possibly some weaknesses or neutral cards. And then we've got Nate from Lost in Time and Space playing. We've got Man from Lang. And we've got Vase. Uh, and then, of course, you uh, listeners at home, feel free to uh, you know do your best as you listen to this on your way to work, at home, playing, uh, if you're being tortured and this is what they're playing to torture you. Whatever the case may be, uh, if you feel like you deserve a prize, please write to Carolyn Fern, the botanist, at gmail.com, and uh, Vase will determine whether or not you get a prize. Okay, so for the first one, here we go. Good luck, everybody. Um, for the first one, we have Mind Wipe. Uh, and these, all these cards today are going to be from the core box. Just to, to give you all a heads up. <clears throat> so Mind Wipe, level one. It costs one experience pip. Fast play after the phase begins. What are the icons on this card? One willpower and one agility icon. Anybody else? Uh, I go with willpower and wild icon. I'm going to go with and just willpower. In this case, it is willpower and fight. Holy cow. If I were on the receiving oh, end of this one, I would, all got it wrong. I would not have gotten it correct. No. Uh, next one. In the picture, cunning distraction. What are they being distracted with? A, a turkey. Damn it. <laughs> Uh, a massively large turkey. Um, Nate, I'm not going to count your answer of a damn it uh, as correct, although I like it. <laughs> I thought that was really well done. I'm going to read a quote. <laughs> I'm going to read a quote on this next card. You tell me the card it's from. And you cannot answer until I'm done, otherwise, I will not count it. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of a black sea of infinity, and it was. It was not meant that we should voyage far. H.P. Lovecraft, The Call of Cthulhu. What is that from? The Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> the Call of Cthulhu card? <laughs> um, God, that'd be a strong card. No, the, the story. <laughs> and what card uh, does that ooh. feature on? Drawn to the Flame. Do we need a hint? 
I said drawn to the flame. Well, yeah, it makes it easy. I'm, I'm going to be listening back to this episode, and I'll listen for the first time you said it. Point. Man from Lang. Nails it. Such a good quote. Damn. Yeah, right? Um, I love it. This is probably going to be the hardest question you've ever gotten. Uh, good luck, everybody. Pickpocketing. Tell me the uh, icon or icons. Agility. And pickpocketing intellect. Something else. Anybody want to give like me a final answer? Fight. Nah, I, I'm going to say one agility. I go with icon. intellect. Uh, man from Lang, you were being drowned out there. What were you saying? I'm sorry. I just said agility initially. Yeah, um, I'm actually going to give it to Man from Lang because he was kind of going to add to it. Nate had uh, he changed his answer, you would have gotten a point. But if he'll make you feel any better, uh, he lives closer to me. All right, next. This is a fun one. I'm going to start vague. How is that supposed to make me feel better? Could you please be quiet, clear channel? I'm doing some trivia here. You had your time to talk. Um, This is fascinating. In the core box, there is one card that actually has Innsmouth people on it. Machete. It is not Machete. Does anyone know which card has Innsmouth folk on the card? Dreams of Relia. Is that a card? It's an encounter card that still hasn't been used. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I'll give you a clue. This card. It's not a player card. This card is also considered to be the, one of the most broken cards in the game for just being overpowered. Elusive? Correct. Woo! Oh, man. So in the elusive picture, he's got his collar popped, and there's two very fishy looking people staring at him. And I was like, dang, precursor to uh, the upcoming Innsmouth core box coming out, or Deluxe. Nate, point. I do like how you got it when I said broken cards. So newer players are going to be like, wait a second. This card doesn't help you get clues or kill things. I I, I should take another look at that card. Okay, next. Um, Silver Twilight Acolyte, two fight, three health, three evade. What are the icons on this card? There are no icons. Point. Man from Lang. It's a treachery. <laughs> That's so good. Love it. All right. Next. You confused me. I thought you were like asking like what the the damage icons. No, I said icons. Man from Lang got it. All right. Next. Barricade. Your favorite barricade. My favorite barricade. Um, what are the icons on this one? Intellect and agility? I'm going to go with um, intellect. I'm going to go with uh, agility and wild. I'm going to go with intellect and fight. All good guesses. The answer is willpower, intelligence, and agility. So if the you want to make icons. sure you Damn. have some options for... <laughs> For icons, Barricade is not a bad choice. Play Barricade 2. Right. Uh, Here we go with a quote. They claimed it would bring me luck. I wouldn't say that's true, but now I feel like it it would be even worse luck to get rid of it. Rabbit's foot? Man from Lang. This is one of your unstoppable episodes. 
Jeez. I think at this point, no one can can beat you. But if someone gets the rest of these correct, they could tie you. Good luck, everybody. Uh, Dr. Milan Christopher. Asset. Cost four. Icon of one intelligence. What is he doing in the picture? He's dissecting a creature. Man from Lang. Yeah, point. some kind of weird. Damn, damn it. He's so fast, <laughs> man from Lang. <laughs> Um, All right, so it's like Family Feud, right? Where whoever gets the last question actually wins, regardless of how nice well he's uh, Also, man from You've Lang. one right base. Your, uh, <laughs> your Venmo payment did go through um, just fine. So, uh, Next, here we go with icons one more time. By the way, for newer players, in case any of this is confusing, a uh, card has a cost on it. That's the number in the circle in the upper left. That's how many resources it costs. It's going to have little white dots under that number, potentially, if it costs experience for a beginning deck. Unless you're playing Father Mateo, you cannot have any cards that have experience, so you shouldn't have any white dots. Under that, there are icons based on the four main attributes of a character. So that's what we're referring to when we say icons. Um, Next one, icons for dodge. The non-upgraded version of Dodge. What are the icons? Willpower. One one power. I'm sorry, uh, man from Lang. You said what? A willpower. Willpower in combat. Okay, Uh, Nate. What did you say? Uh, One single willpower icon. And Vase. What did you say? I said willpower as well. Okay. The answer is willpower and agility, because it's Dodge. Damn it. Yeah. Um, here's a quote that no one's going to get, but, uh, I thought I'd still tease it out there. This could be the toughest question I've asked to date. I've never met a beast that I couldn't out, that could outsmart a bullet. The 45 automatic. I've never met a beast that could outsmart a bullet. 45 automatic is good. Shotgun's a good guess. Now they're correct. Derringer. The answer is extra ammunition. Huh? Pretty cool, huh? All right. And then <clears throat> just for funsies, oh, by the way, the score is Nate, Lost in Time and Space, one, Vase, one, Man from Lang, who did win, five. So feel free to print out that uh, five? five. Yeah. Feel free to print that out there, Man from Lang, and post it up there where you live. Uh, last question. Whoever gets this right will win. No, I'm joking, Vase. I just wanted to mess with you. Uh, no, seriously, last question here, especially for our listeners at home. Uh, I have in front of me an emergency quiche, as they would say on Mythos Busters. No, emergency cash. Can you name all the items in the picture? Go. Oh, Jesus. There's a mask. Yep. Keep going, everybody. There's some bullets. Yep. There's a knife. Nope. There's some no bullets? Money. I don't see a knife. A shotgun. Oh, doing this from memory is so hard, I don't remember. Well, there's a mask, there's bullets, there's a lot of papers, and there is what appears to be some kind of a Thompson, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say it was a and shotgun there's, there's, or some sort of Tommy mm, gun. And there's a notepad. There's a uh, notepad. Looks to be a book, like yeah. maybe Daisy would have. And there's something else in the in the mm-hmm. background that 
would be very important to a rogue, I think. The Tommy gun? No, in the background, not the foreground. Although that's not a Tommy gun. In the background, uh, there's a... I'm not looking at it or anything, but there, um, there is a... Uh, shoot, what is the name of that thing? Um, it's a metallic thing with a curve at the end that you can pop a door open with. A crowbar? You use lever a crowbar. There's a crowbar. There's a crowbar. I can't there. help but think that you were looking at the card when you said that, Vase. I I was not. I was just thinking with my photographic but memory. You said, and I'm not Vase looking is at it. So he's now cheating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at this point, I really start to wonder. But yeah, so yeah, just kind of a fun uh, card that's going to play a, a big impact in a lot of people's decks because hey, money's good, and uh, it definitely gives you the sense of. Hey, I need some stuff. <laughs> but anyway, hey, excellent job. Man from Lang on fire. Uh, please write to carolynfernthebotanist at gmail.com for your prize. Uh, I don't know what base will send you, but I'd like you to let me know. See, Casey, uh, you know, cheat you. All right, so before we wrap up today's episode, I do quickly want to give a shout-out to the Esoteric Order of our patrons for their support of the show. A special thanks goes out to our Charnel Lords, Robert, and newest member, Duvies. A random shout-out this episode goes to another new patron, Sagel Swan. You guys rock. Um, but the Arkham LCG isn't the only game that we're interested in. Episode 2 of our ongoing Call of Cthulhu campaign, Floatsome and Jetsome, is now available for patrons. Set in the mid-1920s, a group of investigators are called in by Strange But True, a publication dedicated to reporting on the weird and occult happenings around the world. To look into a strange and unusual death of an over of a, of a century-old woman from Innsmouth. Meanwhile, another group of local reporters from Boston are looking in, uh, looking to make a bit of cash from writing an obituary for, about the estranged woman, all the while looking into the disappearance of a fellow colleague from Ipswich. At the funeral, however, things take an unexpected and sudden turn, as the players become the ire of the entire townsfolk. We're well on our way to uh, making our first stretch goal of setting up monthly games with our lovely cultists live on Twitch. Uh, what we play will be up to order members and coordinated through our Discord. Uh, we have some other projects in the works for patrons, including a revival and revamping of the Orn Library Book Club, which, uh, if you aren't familiar, was a book club that we had started a few months ago with patrons, and we had recently... Uh, read through the gutter prayer, but we we want to do some do some shopkeeping behind the works to make that a little more engaging. So head over to our Discord if you have any suggestions about that, but for now, stay tuned for future updates. And if you want to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash thegreatoldonesgaming and consider joining the order today. But with that, that's going to wrap up today's episode. I've been your host, Nate, lost in time and space, and I was joined with today... I am the man from Lang, host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. I am Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. And I am Nathan Early. You can check out my stuff uh, on Instagram at Arkham Horror Images of Madness. We appreciate you giving us a listen. <laughs>